Well, it is a special weekend in, in many regards. Uh, first and foremost, it's, it's Memorial Day weekend, and how appropriate for us, the church especially, to, to pause like we have and to remember and honor those who've given their lives because we get to worship freely, largely because of what they've done. And so it's Memorial Day weekend, a big weekend for all of us. And then for many in our crowd, it's uh, graduation weekend for a bunch of seniors as well. So a lot of family impacted by that. So it's a special weekend. I'm, but I'm glad that you are here. Um, do you remember your dreams? Do you wake up in the night or in the morning and recall what you dreamed during the nighttime? Experts tell us that we all dream several times a night, but, but I'm one of those folks that wake up uh, middle of the night or morning time and almost never remember, never even realize I've dreamed during the night. I could count on one hand the number of times I can recall waking up and realizing I had a dream. So I don't know about you, but that's, but that's me. Um, but I woke up in the early morning hours of July 7th, 1992, uh, with a vivid dream on my mind, and it was so strong and so stark, I felt like my body had been ripped in two, I felt like that literally from sternum down, I was torn in two, I had just dreamed vividly that my wife Maria died, and I was experiencing this deep, deep pain and horror and grief in that, and it was so real, I looked over and she was there in the bed beside me, and I don't recall now if I was thoughtful and if I just watched to see if she was breathing and then let her sleep or if I woke her up and said, talk to me. But, but I realized it was just a dream. But it was so vivid, so real. I had trouble going back to sleep and my sleep was very unsettled. And when I woke up, I had these, these jagged edges of grief. It's so I was, I was um, bleeding grief out even, even then, even though the, just because of the memory of a dream. As the day progressed, the jagged edges kind of softened. I got a phone call late that afternoon from my father. He said that he and my mother had been sitting in the living room talking. She said, oh my, and lowered her head and breathed her last and died. In that moment, I began to mourn my mother's death. And I began to recognize at a level I would have never realized the level of grief that my father would begin walking through. And so I've learned, I learned a lot about grief in that season. I've learned a lot in other seasons as well. I say that because there are some of you in this room are, are deeply suffering grief now. And my prayer for the last month in preparation for today has been some things that are said today will be of help to you, will encourage you. Many of you in this room are not in grief right now, but you know you know someone who is in the midst of grief. And my hope for you is that you would hear some things today that would help you better understand where your friend or loved one is. You might hear some things today that might help you walk better alongside them. But then many of you in this room, you're neither in grief yourself nor as someone that you know and love. And, but the truth is, if you're not grieving now, the day will come that you will. Yeah, no one escapes grief in their lifetime. Many years back, I was reflecting upon, upon our life and the lives of every person that I knew with, with any familiarity, and every single one of them had suffered great loss and had suffered grief. And I thought, no, no one, no one gets out unscathed, and it's true. It's true. And so for you, I would hope you might, you might hear some things, make some notes of some things that might help you when that time does come for you. Know this, that when you're in, in a time of grief, you're in, you're in great company. 
the spiritual giants of Scripture suffered grief. Jeremiah wrote one of the longest books in the Bible. He would write in Jeremiah 10, 19, he would say, desperate is my wound, my grief is great, my sickness is incurable, but I must bear it. The psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 28, would say, I weep with grief, my heart is heavy with sorrow. And not just the spiritual giants, but, but Jesus himself, you were in company with Jesus Isaiah 53, 3 would say about him, he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. And then Matthew 26, 38, tonight Jesus would be arrested. He's in the garden, and he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. If, if you were in grief, when the time comes you are in grief, you're in good company. I have a lot to share this morning. I would encourage you to take notes. There's some things I'll say that are going to be helpful to you now or later, but more than you'll remember, so I would encourage you to take notes. If you need to take out an electronic device and take notes, I will trust you're taking notes. You're not checking out a score someplace or anything. But I think it will be worth your time to, to take some notes. All unwanted loss results in grief. All unwanted loss results in grief. If there's something that matters to you, something that you value, and you lose it, then grief will be the outcome of that. Most especially the loss of a loved one tends to bring the deepest grief, the longest lasting grief, but loss of a relationship as well. Maybe it, it's a marriage, maybe it's a dating relationship, maybe it's a sibling relationship, maybe it's a friendship, but loss of relationship can cause deep grief. Loss of health can cause deep grief. Loss of possessions. I thought back not two years ago to Harvey and thought about all of you in this room who suffered loss of so many possessions. And the grief that came with that, especially if the possessions were heirlooms that could not be restored or recovered, loss of possessions, cause, loss of job can cause grief. If you've lost a job and haven't grieved, probably a good thing you lost that job. There's a better one someplace else. But most of you, loss of job could cause grief. Loss of dreams can cause grief. Maybe it's dreams of having a family that looks like you will never have. Maybe it's loss of dreams about your kids that will never come true. Loss of dreams about career achievement that you don't see on the horizon now. Or maybe loss of the hope for one day greater financial freedom that looks like it simply won't happen. Loss of dreams can cause grief as well. And the magnitude of the loss determines the magnitude of the grief. The magnitude of the loss determines the magnitude of the grief. But by virtue of living on this planet, you will suffer grief. It's not a matter of, of will you grieve. The question is, how will you grieve? How will you grieve? I'm going to use a couple of sources that have helped me a lot in the past several weeks. One is, as H. Norman Wright has written many books on grief, um, one that I'll speak out of and one that we have copies of in the lobby for you. Uh, it's called Experiencing Grief. He lost a son at the age of 22, he lost his wife to brain cancer. He's worked with many, many people with grief. It's an excellent book. I, I've leaned upon him in what I'm teaching today. And then I've also leaned upon Verdell Davis Krischer. Uh, she would not want me to say this, but she is a legend. She's an icon. Her husband uh, was one of the best friends of James Dobson, founder of Focus on the Family. There was a, a, an event, a retreat event, where James Dobson and four of his closest friends on the planet were at the retreat. The retreat ended, Dobson went one direction, the four men went another in a plane, their plane crashed, the four of them died. Verdell's husband was one of the four. Marie and I have heard about her for decades. She's, she's a legend. We got to meet her, actually, 
uh, last month and got to talk with her. She's, she's a precious woman. She wrote the book, Let Me Grieve, But Not Forever. It is a classic and one I would highly recommend to you. I've drawn upon conversation with her, upon notes she gave me, as well as, as what she's written in her books as well. So there, there are three key things I want to leave you with today. The first is this, that in grief, your questions are valid and need to be asked. I've taken this straight from Verdell. In grief, your questions are valid and need to be asked. She asked the question, why? Most of us do. Why? She asked, does anybody care? She asked, how do I reconcile God's love with my pain? She asked, God, are you truly sovereign? She asked, what now? She asked, is there life after? She she had so many questions, and she said she learned they're valid, and they needed to be asked. Job, book written by, about him by his name, his name is the reference of it, thought to be the first book that is in the Bible, first book written that's in the Bible, would suffer in rapid succession. He would suffer the loss of his children, loss of his possessions, loss of his health. And in the context of the book, he would ask 16 times, why? Like, why, God? Why me? Why has this happened to me again and again and again? And while it's important to know that your questions are valid and they need to be asked, you have to understand that you cannot demand they be answered in a way you understand. You simply can't demand or expect them to be answered in the way you would understand. Ken Geyer's great author. He says, in times of upheaval, a voice from heaven says, be still and know that I'm God. But it doesn't say, be still and know why. Norman Wright would, would say this. He would say, in times of loss and sorrow, We people of faith have to believe against the grain. I love that. He's saying in times of grief and sorrow, when when our, our understanding of God, our faith in God, our belief about God, our belief about this life doesn't line up with our experience, he says we have to believe against the grain. And then Verdell's husband, she would recall him saying this so many times, she would write about it. He he said again and again before his death, you can trust in the character of God far beyond what you can understand. You can trust in the character of God far beyond what you can understand. My father died of suicide. He had been, he had been a, a man of deep, authentic, genuine faith most of his life, the entire time that I knew him. The first 75 years of his life, he was the most joy-filled person that I'd ever been around. And at 75, uh, he began to experience depression and began to act in strange ways and actually attempted suicide and was hospitalized. And there they they, uh, gave him some medications. The first couple did not work. The third third did work beautifully. And the, the experts said, this is what's occurred with him. It's not been a matter of circumstances that have depressed him and caused him to attempt to take his life. It's been the matter of, of chemical imbalance in his brain. And so they had found just the right chemical replacement for him, and he was back to normal. And for almost three years, just back to his normal self. And then there was a, a week that a letter came, and it didn't sound quite right. There was a phone conversation one night, and I was 1,400 miles away. My brother was nearly 400 miles away. My brother called and said, I'll be there in the morning to pick you up and bring you back with me. But when morning came, my dad had taken his life. The questions that I had. Why, God? You, you're an all-powerful God. You could have tweaked the brain chemistry easily. I mean, all these years of faithfulness and all these years of this bright light in your kingdom, you know, why, why didn't you stop that? 
questions of, of God, did we miss some earlier signs? Should we have caught it earlier? Should we have made it the trek one day earlier? Did, did we miss the boat on this? Questions of God, will this forever for overshadow and blot out this, the, the impact, the legacy of his life? Will this cover it all over? The questions again and again and again. When you're grieving, know that your questions are valid and they need to be asked. And there's one question that, that will be answered for you. And it's a question, where is God in this? Where is God in the midst of my grief? And it's answered for us in Psalm 34, 18. It says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Where is God? He is close to you in your grief. He's there. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. In, in the questioning and in the wondering, we have to recognize that there's more than we feel, more than we see. There's more than we feel, more than we see. But your questions are valid, and they need to be asked. The second main thing I want to give you is this, is that waiting is a necessary and invaluable part of grieving. Waiting is a necessary and invaluable part of grieving. And we don't wait well, do we? To say that we're a microwave society is almost behind the times. Microwaves seem pretty slow to me these days. But most of you have in your purse or pocket or your hand, you have an electronic device. You can get almost any answer to any question instantly. You can call up any music on the planet, almost any movie in history you can watch instantly. You can go sit in your pajamas all day tomorrow. You can order almost anything on the planet. It'll be at your door the next day, won't it? But we, we're not good at waiting. And yet waiting is this necessary and invaluable part of grieving. Norman Wright says that grief is slow and you need it to be. Grief is slow and you need it to be. It is work and sometimes very hard work. Wright, uh, <laughs> Wright writes about, <laughs> he's talking about this journey and he says that uh, when, when grief has come, that you'll, have, you'll begin to have uh, some windows of time when you're not feeling the, the heaviness and the pain of it all. But, but there are these, he calls them grief spasms that come back. And I have a dear, dear friend who recently lost his wife to a long battle with cancer. And I, we were texting back and forth last week. And, and he said, I've had some good windows of, of a few hours. And out of nowhere, it's like a sledgehammer that hits me and knocks me to the ground all over again. It, it is a slow process and you need it to be slow. How long will it take? Again, the magnitude of the loss determines the magnitude of the grief. And Norman writes about the, that greatest loss and greatest grief is that of, of a dearly loved one. And, and he, he hesitates to, to give any time frame because he says everyone's grief is different. People grieve differently. Their time frames are different. But he said if you, if you must have some idea, this is what it might look for some people, not all, but for some people. He says the third month tends to be very difficult. The shock and numbness have worn off. You can no longer be in denial about it. The people around you, your loved ones, they have probably already moved beyond the grief, and you haven't. The third month can be a very difficult month. Six to nine months, he says, the body's immune system is so often weakened and vulnerable. A.W. Tozer says that the body, mind, and spirit are so closely linked that what happens to one happens to each of the other. And so, so physically, you battle fatigue. And if you're in grief, you can almost check the boxes on these. Physically, you battle fatigue. Mentally, you're on circuit overload. Emotionally, your reserves are depleted. 
Spiritually, there may be a crisis of faith. All those colliding, you're so much more susceptible to illnesses and sickness in that window of time. And then he says, of course, the first anniversary of the death will be very, very hard. It'll bring back all of the memories and feelings of loss. It'll be very, very difficult. He says, for some people, he's cautious to say not all. He says, for some people at 18 months, there can be stretches of more good days and bad. And he's cautious to say that because that may not be true for you. Or it may not be true for the one that, that you are trying to walk beside. Don't expect that of yourself. Don't expect it of someone else. But for some people, 18 months are stretches of more good days and bad. 18 to 24 months, for some people, the first signs of a sense of release. The first real renewal of energy, the ability to make better judgments, the eating and sleeping is coming together. For some people, 18 to 24 months. But, but waiting is a necessary and invaluable part of grieving. Burdell says this. She says, the danger is that we will attempt to fix the pain and in that lose heart for the slow process of healing. We'll try to fix the pain. We'll try to mask the pain because it hurts so much. In the process, in the absence of pain, we can't heal. We cannot heal without feeling the pain. She says, we'll lose heart for the slow process of healing. And so for some, it's, it's this innocent uh, immersion in busyness in work or activity. And, and there's this, there's this uh, advantage of being busy to a degree, but disadvantage to be too busy. Uh, you can only handle so much pain. You need it in doses, in small doses. And, and so there can be this great gain if you can go to work. If you can go about, about some cause, there can be some gain. But if you go about it too much, you don't allow yourself to open up and experience the pain again and again and again. And healing simply won't occur. So it can be busyness, it can be trying to mask it with alcohol, which will present problems of your healing, but maybe other problems as well. It can be trying to treat it with drugs. I recently spoke with a woman who, young age, her husband was murdered, died in her arms, and the pain was so severe, she began to take uh, pain medication, became deeply addicted, and caused wreckage for years in her life. And uh, the danger is trying to fix the pain. You have to feel it in order to heal. Waiting is all about hope. It's all about hope in the unchanging God. And in the waiting, God's gift in the grief will be tears. Uh, Wright talks about how uh, tears are actually God's gift of expressing grief. It's how he wires, it's how he made human beings. It's this outward expression, this outward pouring out of our grief. My, I try to track my role model on this one. If, if, uh, if you grew up around church and you were challenged, like some of us were, to memorize some scripture, and maybe you were a little bit delinquent on it, as I was, uh, then probably the first scripture you ever learned, I think it's the most memorized scripture on the planet, but it's John eleven thirty five, And you wouldn't recognize that, but you'd recognize the verse. It says, Jesus wept. And we all learned that in fifth grade because that one we could learn, the others were too long, but it, Jesus wept. And it was true of him. You read scriptures. In fact, later on in John 19, verse 41, he's, he's entering Jerusalem for the last week. And he's looking at, at Jerusalem that he loves so dearly. And he begins to weep over them because he says, I know what was, what was yours for the taking. And you have squandered it all. You squandered it all. You began to weep for them. And, and I try to look at, at him as my role model when I'm grieving as well. I would say this to all of you, but especially men, because the culture has driven us this way. I would say, never be afraid of honest tears shedding grief. 
Never be afraid or ashamed of honest tears shedding grief. I followed Jesus' model. We, we were made for that. We were made to weep in times of grief. Norman Wright would say this, and this is really profound. He said, if you follow your tears, you will find your heart. And if you find your heart, you'll find what is dear to God. If you find what is dear to God, you'll find the answer to how you should live. Let me say that again. If you follow your tears, you will find your heart. If you find your heart, you will find what is dear to God. If you find what is dear to God, you will find the answer to how you should live out your life. So waiting is a necessary and invaluable part of grieving. The third thing is this, is that God is more than a God of survival. He is a God of healing. God is more than a God of survival. He is a God of healing. Isaiah 60, verse 20 says, For the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. And I want to give you three ways he works to bring healing to your grief. The first is community. Not everyone needs to, to grieve with people as much as others. Probably part of it's by wiring. Probably some that are more extroverts need to grieve more with people. Some that are introverts need to grieve less with, with them. But every single person needs someone or someones in, with which they can walk through this grief. Someone or someones to whom they can express this grief that's deeply, deeply needed. When Marie and I were in our 20s, Marie was pregnant. We were four months into this first child of ours, and unexpectedly we lost that child. And there was this deep grief that began. We had a number of friends. They were good friends. They were really good people, but they were as clueless as we were. I think at best they each said, I'm sorry, once, and then they went on, and they just assumed we would go on as well. And we were as clueless as they were, but the grief wouldn't leave. And we needed people to sit with us in some of that on occasion, or someone who could listen to that on occasion. And, and they, again, no fault of their own. They were great people. They were just clueless. But it led us to find a church, and we found this church, and it's another story, but like God like sucked us into a small group. We walked in the door of church, and it's like this, we sucked in this small group. It's a phenomenal small group. And, and with that group, um, when we finally were willing to open up because we felt like we had been burned by people who couldn't understand, when we finally opened up and said, you know what, back a few months back, uh, this happened, and we're still hurting. They knew how to embrace us and sit with us and pray with us and listen with us. They learned that there. Here at the harbor, so many of you in your time of grief that you are in now or that you were once in or you'll be in one day, for many at the harbor, a small group is a place for you. You have people there that love you so much, love you like family. They care about you. Some people that have been down the road enough, that have learned enough to know to sit with you, to walk with you, to grieve with you, to pray with you. For many of you in this room, it, it is your small group. For many in this room, it would be a grief share group. We do grief share groups two or three times a year. The next one is start, uh, when school starts. But it would be a grief share group led by, by um, a trained, gifted person, sometimes one of our pastors, and, and a group of people going through grief you can walk with together. But God uses community to bring about healing. He also uses celebration to bring about healing. And this one surprised me. I had to reflect back on it. I got this from Burdell. She said, don't give pain independent existence. 
force it to take its place in the total context of your life. Okay, don't give it this independent existence. Force it to take its place in life. Don't let it become everything. Now, now she's not saying the first day, the first week, the first month, that's all you can experience because that may be true. But you have to come to some point saying, I, I, need, to, I need to pick my head up and I need to see something good in this life and celebrate it. It may be a blue sky. It may be a good meal. It may be the smile of a friend or a stranger. It may be finally being ready to celebrate the good memories that you hold of the person that you've lost. After my dad's suicide, the instant I would think of him, my thought would be of his suicide. It was such a huge and traumatic event. That was my sole thought. And I found myself, I would have to push that thought aside. And I have to think about the other you know, four decades that I had with him and that I knew him. And I'd have to pick out a great memory and focus on that. And the next time I would think of him, my, the overwhelming thought, the consuming thought would be his suicide. I have to force it to the background again and find another thought, another good memory, another quality of his and think about that. And the third time, this overwhelming thought of suicide. But somewhere along the way, the thoughts of suicide began to diminish until at some point in time they totally disappeared. And I had not thought about his suicide for a long, long time until I began to prepare this message. At some point in the process of grief, you have to begin to look around and find things to celebrate. God uses that to bring about healing in your life. And finally, God uses context to bring about healing. By, by context, I mean the big picture. I mean taking the view from 30,000 feet and looking down. So I want you to look with me back at the Garden of Eden, what Scripture says about the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve were created there, there were no losses and there was no grief, was there? Absolutely no losses. There, were no, there was no grief. That was what God designed. That's what God planned until the day that they chose to sin. And in sin, their relationship became fractured between the two of them. The relationship with God became fractured. That was a massive loss. They, their bodies began to die. That was a massive loss. They, they, they brought sin onto this planet, and losses began, and grief began. And, and I would say this sin is the ultimate source of all loss and all grief. Even uh, natural events that happen, when you read what Paul writes in Romans 8, he clearly suggests that when sin entered the world, that the world is so intertwined spiritually and physically that, that sin fractured the physical world as well. Sin is behind every single loss and behind all grief. There's this intriguing account of Jesus. His dear friend Lazarus has died. It becomes apparent as you're reading John chapter 11 that Jesus knew he was going to die because Jesus had this bigger plan to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus arrives and he sees people weeping. And it says um, in verse 33, it has this uh, surprising comment. It says, he sees them weeping and deep anger welled up within him. Now, there is no possible way he was angry because they were weeping. I mean, Jesus himself was one who would appropriately weep every loss. He wasn't angry because they were weeping. And if you give it some thought, you realize that what he was angry about was these people in grief he deeply loved, and his anger was at sin and at Satan. 
because sin and Satan were behind all of it. That was where his anger was. And he even comes back a few verses later and, and says he was still angry. And sin is the source of all loss and all grief. But then look with me at heaven. One of my favorite passages is Revelations 21.4. Speaking of heaven, it says, In heaven he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. For everyone who comes to know and trust and follow Jesus, when they breathe their last, they step into heaven, and, and grief is done with. Grief is history. Grief is the past. Grief is the past. It's, it's, why, it's why it matters so much that you and everyone you love comes to know and trust and follow Jesus. It matters so much because there, there are two alternatives. One is heaven where there'll be no loss and no grief ever. And the other is hell where all has been lost, never to be recovered, and the place is saturated in undending grief. You and everyone you love must come to a point of knowing, loving, trusting, following Jesus. My mother and father knew, trusted, loved Jesus. They're in heaven now. And knowing that, the context of that has drastically impacted my grief over losing them. I'm going to see him again one day. It changes everything. It changes everything. Honestly, the reason that God created the harbor of this church is because he loves every person so much, and that would include you and your seat, that he wanted this to be a place that people would actually find this on Jesus and trust him and follow him with abandon and have life change now and life change forever. That's why the harbor exists. That is why the harbor exists. He's a God so much more surviving He's a God of actual healing. And he does that through community. He does that through celebration. He does that through context of heaven. I, I, want, I want to end. The band will come up in just a few moments. I want to end with a song that has a declaration that will be appropriate for you, wherever you're at. If you're in deep grief, the, the song invites you to, to cry out, Lord, I need you. And that, that is your cry. That should be your cry. If you're here and you're not grieving, but your, your friend or loved one is, then for you to cry out for your sake and for them, Lord, I need you, they need you. If you're here and, and neither of those are true, the grief will come one day and you just need him day in, day out. Your cry is, I need you. If you're here especially and you're pondering whether or not your eternity is going to be grief-saturated or grief-free, the beginning of that is to cry out, Lord, I need you. I need to know your son, Jesus. I want to know him. I, I yearn to know him. I yearn to put my faith in him and follow him. Show me how. Show me how. So let me pray for us and the band to come up and we can, we can sing that together. Father in heaven, Father, I pray especially now for those that are in deep grief. Pray that they have and they will feel your encouragement. They will feel your fresh hope. I pray that, that they will lean into the things that they're learning, understanding about this process of grief. Father, I pray for, for the rest of us here in this room that are not in grief now, but we will be one day. I pray that you'll bring to mind the things we've learned today. 
And in doing so, we'll recognize what is ahead of us and the gravity of it, but also recognize the hope that you're a God who not only yearns for us to survive, but yearns for us to heal, Father. And then, Father, my deep prayers are for those in this room now who have not yet trusted their life to Jesus and began to follow him. And I pray you would put this uh, spark of hope within him that Jesus is indeed alive, this hope that he knows them, he died for them, he rose for them, this hope that he is a path of life now, and he is the one who will give them this eternity in heaven one day. And I pray that they will move toward you and him now. Father, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.